But at 6.30 in the morning, my phone rings and I'm taking my son's bags out of the back of the truck and I see the golf team ready to play for districts. And I answered the phone and Seth was dead. Mm. His girlfriend was pregnant, so he has a he has a daughter. That he didn't know about, right? But Jeff, welcome. Welcome to Millennial Manhood. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm honored to be here. I've uh, had a chance to uh, look over some of your previous uh, interviews, and I think what we're going to talk about should be right down the the uh, the line of sight that you're looking to uh, to talk to. Yeah. So so background. You and I got uh, connected through a gentleman named Anthony, and. Mm-hmm. We spent like, I think it was like 40 minutes on the phone when you and I actually connected. And, and I remember just thinking like, ah, oh, crap, I wish I was recording this. Um, <laughs> cause it was just, it was just so it was, it one that that's when I get excited about interviews is when I'm talking to somebody and I'm like, oh crap, this is going to be freaking awesome. Um, yeah. but Jeff, who are you? What are you? Why are you on the podcast? What's your story? Like, give us the 10,000 foot view. Wow. Um, you know, for me, it's about the embracing the concept of impermanence. And what I mean by that is that the moments we have in life, quite often we don't realize how fragile and how intimate and how short-term they are. Just you and I, our conversation today will come to an end mm. and we'll move on to bigger and better things. And for me, you know, dialing back the clock here for a few seconds, Uh, I'm 55. And at uh, 50 years old, I had achieved what I set out to achieve from my early 20s. I went to college originally to be a basketball coach, decided I didn't like the money in that industry and went into finance. So at 23, I started an investment company. No cell phones. You know, we had the big bag phones, Um, no computers, no internet you know, door to door, knocking on doors, handing out, you know, business cards made up on napkins, selling life insurance, working hundred hours a week, sleeping in my car. Mm. And I did that for, I got married at 35, primarily because I was married to my career. I, I, I was obsessed with making money. Uh, at the time between my twenties and thirties into my forties, I was a compulsive gambler and I was an alcoholic as well, which in my industry as a wealth manager, being a, a gambler isn't a isn't a really good thing to put on your resume. So I had I had a mask on, mm. and I was accumulating wealth. I had a you know driving nice cars. I had I had a nice house with a back with a pool, living the dream that you aspire when you start off on this journey in your twenties. Well, so here here I am at fifty. Uh, April, uh, I'm sorry, October fourth, two thousand sixteen. I'm married. I have three boys. Seth's my oldest. At the time, he was, uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll, let me refrain that. I was married. I had my oldest son, Seth, my middle son, Ian, and my youngest son, Roman. Happily married. I mean, just you name it, business. I had it all. And at 630 in the morning, I'm taking my middle son to play golf. And I write about this extensively in my book. There's seven chapters in my book are dedicated to how golf pretty much saved my life and how the journey of golf helped us raise awareness to, to the issue I'm going to cover here in a second. But at 6.30 in the morning, my phone rings 
and I'm taking my son's bags out of the back of the truck and I see the golf team ready to play for districts. And um, I look at the phone and I recognize the number and I realize that, you know, here we go. It's probably not a good call, you know, mm. and what you're not aware of at this time, this was an eight year journey that we had with our oldest son, Seth, with addiction and substance abuse and alcohol abuse and started when he was 15 when he was prescribed Adderall. And I answered the phone and Seth was dead. Mm. And at that, I mean, sorry, at that, um, at that moment, everything changed and everything came crumbling down in an instant that I built up my whole life for this moment of being on the summit of life and enjoying the fruits of my labor. And now, boom, death, the most efficient teacher handed me an opportunity to become a better man on a silver platter. And I didn't tell my son anything. Matter of fact, I got in my car. I didn't say, I love you. I didn't say good luck. He knew something was wrong. I turned around, got in my car and I thought, how in the hell am I going to tell my wife that our son is dead? Mm. And I drove home and my son got into the van with the other players and took off to play districts, probably wondering where the heck's dad, you know, dad's never missed a meet. Dad's my rock star. And so I, um, so, so began the journey. And that's, uh, that's why I'm here today to talk about what we went through, how we persevered, the projects I'm on now, how living undeterred has become a saying for me. And I am now addicted to being vulnerable. Mm. I'm not sure if you've ever been exposed to this issue, but I'm running into it because I'm spending, yesterday I spent at least eight hours on my new project that I'm working on which simultaneously I do a podcast, I do a blog. I, I still am semi working in my investment company. Um, I have a business partner. I have seven full-time staff and I have nine financial advisors in my firm. So I'm at the point now in my life where I, I've got to realize that, that this all-consuming desire to honor my son and to help kids is potentially going to take a, a toll on me. So, so here I am. This, this is how you and I hooked up. Uh, Anthony's actually interviewed me to be a, a, a feature. I don't know what you, he doesn't do a show per se, like a podcast. He does a, he does, articles. He does a writing. Yeah. Yeah. Articles. There you go. And, um, and so I was honored to be on a show and, and as you can probably attest to the velocity of social media is, is jaw dropping. I mean, mm -hmm. I literally can't keep up with the context. I can't, I mean, you and I just met a month ago. Mm -hmm. And we've already had two or three really good, deep, intimate conversations about personal things. You know, I never would have met you had it not been for COVID, you know, think about that. Mm -hmm. You know, so in chaos, there is, there is beauty. If you have to, you have to look for it. I just, I mean, I got, I've already heard the story and I got goosebumps just li listening to, I don't, I don't even know how to articulate. This might be the first time I'm lost for words on the podcast. <laughs> like, I love to talk. Um, well, the problem is when you try to put language into a scenario like death of a child, yeah, then it becomes confusing because there are no words to explain the utter respect and awe I have towards death and what I've learned through this process. And you're right in trying to find, you know, words 
it it complicates it because there are no words. I mean, I I I, I hope nobody, and I know this isn't going to happen because I know it's happening. Oh, was two hundred times today? There's going to be another Jeff Johnston that gets this phone call in the United States. So, I pray and hope that that um, you know people don't have to go through this, but I know that they will. But until you've been through it, you know, you sit there and watch movies and you say, "Oh, something bad happens." I wonder what it's like to feel this way, and I wonder what it's like. And then when it happens, it's just a whole different scenario—the gut wrenching pain in, in the pit of your stomach. And I've got this quote that I live by that I'll share with you that I kind of stole from Victor Frankl. I think we talked about mm-hmm. Man's is meaning. pain is unavoidable, but suffering is a choice. And I've learned over my coming up on five years since Seth died that I choose my suffering. I'm a hundred percent control of how I suffer. I, I'm not in how I feel pain. I break my arm. I can't control the pain. You know, you bury a child, you can't control the pain, but I certainly can control the length of time that I choose to suffer. That's the lesson from this whole uh, journey I've been offered to to jump on, to join, you know, and I say death's an efficient teacher. I mean, what more efficient teacher is there than death? Mm. If it doesn't clarify and magnify and amplify everything that we're doing, I mean, we want to honor the dead, but we really need to live for the living. Mm Mm-hmm. So I have two other boys still alive. I'm not going to spend 90% of my time, you know, feeling sorry for the one that isn't here. You know, I got to spend 90% of my time. And this is where I'm running into problems, to be honest with you, is I'm not. Mm. My writing and my projects are just taking so much of my time. So with ADD, I've got to learn to kind of take deep breath. I did my meditation before I went on your show so I could calm down and keep learning. You know, that's the... I guess that's the beauty of everything is that I, I don't profess to know anything. I'm, I'm no expert. I got people calling me saying, Jeff, uh, you know, my son's an addict. What do I tell him? And, you know, my other son attempted suicide. What do I tell him? I'm like, I'm a dad. I mean, that's, that's what I am. Hmm. I'm, I'm no expert in this stuff. I have no clinical background. I met a minor in psychology, but I'm just a dad. So no. You know, I'm not going to eradicate the drug problems, but I certainly can help the kids. I know I know that's my calling in my life. And that's why your show, you know, uh, really attracted me, because I think. I think my story isn't a story about kids, about me. It's about where the future is, where I want to spend my time, you know, and that's helping kids. And millennials is that what, 25 to 41 age bracket, pretty much. Right. Mm -hmm. Man, there's okay. Who? All right. I actually teared up during that. I was like, man, this is just moving me on another level. Um, just the the thought of the pain that you've gone through, and not just you, but anybody who's experienced that and uh, perseverance to get out of it. And like you said, death being a teacher. Um, I do want to take a step back. Okay. So you mm-hmm. get into the finance world, which you and I have talked, have bonded over that because I spent 10 years in that world. I'm going to try to say this in the nicest way possible. That world tends to breed self-righteous douchebaggery um for a myriad of reasons um and when you describe the whole being an alcoholic gambler like people would be shocked how common that is yeah uh, in that world now there's also great people don't get me wrong like i'm not every single one but as a culture in that world self-righteous douchebaggery is the best way i can describe it um and it's almost from this place of 
um, moral superiority in the douchebaggery as well. So that trap of, you know, you start out selling life insurance door to door. You probably then add on some A share mutual funds back in the nineties. And, uh, when everybody and their mom is making money in the stock market, you just, you know, throw a dart at a board and it, it, it makes money. And then you start doing advisory fees and you're building up AUM, et cetera. Next thing you know, you're making seven figures. Yeah. Okay. Next. I mean, you, yeah. I know how much you guys manage. You're, you're making, there's real money there, yeah. but that real yeah. money, I always tell people money isn't good or bad. Inherently money just amplifies who you are at your core at that yeah. moment anyway. Yeah. So how did you fall into that trap and what do you think, what impact do you think that had on your family of, of, um, the gambling, the, the alcoholism, the, like you said, you, from a keeping up with the Joneses part, you, mm-hmm. you had, um, you had it everything. And no, 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 maybe you disagree with my self-righteous douchebaggery assessment of the industry, but, uh, feel free, feel free to let me know on that as well. No, not at all. The, uh, the trap that I fell into was set long time ago, back in my youth, uh, because I'm a highly competitive, you know, alpha male type a, which is the type um, of people who get in that business. Yeah. And I grew up with three brothers and mom would throw food out at five o'clock and say, you know, blow the whistle. And that was it. There was no reheating. There was no putting it in the refrigerator. You came in like wolves and you ate and then you went out and played again. (laughs) Yeah. And if you didn't, then you're on your own, you know, and we didn't have curfew. You know, I, I would be at 10 o'clock at night, four neighborhoods over playing and, you know, riding bikes. And that's kind of how we grew up kind of fearless. Um, and today there's so much more coddling with kids and, you know, fix the boo-boo if you fall down. I mean, I mean, my dad was a doctor. He never was home much growing mm. up. Gr- great dad. I mean, but he was on call. He was always, I didn't grow up in an alcoholic family. I will tell you that my parents, I've never seen my dad drunk. I've never seen my mom drink mm. ever. So from that standpoint where I got my alcoholism, I can't blame it on genes. I mean, I, I was just a bored exploring youth and that's what got me into that. But with money. Yeah, with money. And I, I made, I mean, at some point I read a book on my problems with gambling because there was times I was going to Vegas seven, eight times a year. I got to the point at one point and I have not, I didn't even write about this in the book, but I had a line of credit at a bank uh, where, where they would phone the casino and they would set up a line of credit for me. So when I flew, I wasn't a whale by any means. Don't get me wrong. I was still flying, you know, coach on United. But, um, you know, when I landed, I could walk into the MGM and they could give me $50,000. Wow. You know? um, and, but I did, I, you know, obviously I, I never, that never crossed over to my business. I mean, I, I was able to just separate that. I, I never felt like I, ne- I needed to take from a client. I never, I never drank in front of a client. I never, you know, none of that stuff, uh, cross over to, and I guess I, I'm, I'm honored that I had the willpower to do that, but I'm also ashamed that I didn't have the willpower to do other things in my life. And as, as I took layers off the mash, you know, gambling and drinking and all these other things, then I finally realized, you know, a couple of years after Seth died, when I quit drinking, which would have been October, um, December 24th, 2017. Um, you know, I found my why my why became my way. That's, mm-hmm. that's a quote I like to use when I talk to people, you know, you have a why I know you do, you mm-hmm. and I've talked and that why is your way. And that evolves. Sometimes your why may be the death of a child and I may get stage four cancer today. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden my why goes from my son who's gone to 
my mortality. You know, those are deep, impending, you know, <laughs> emotions and issues that we have to deal with as we as we navigate through life. So, you know, I guess one thing too that I would recommend people watching your show is try not to keep score. You know, I, I don't I don't know how many days I haven't drank. I don't even like to quote the date that I stopped because that sounds like I'm keeping score. Mm. And I wrote a blog on this called Drown the Beast, and it was a 15-minute audio blog I did that I wrote about four months ago. It's on my website where I navigated through the, the mind of an alcoholic and kind of the games that they play and, you know, the parallels and the metaphors that go with just life in general, you know. So I, I just, I'm kind of on this very big quest to learn and take my take my most unshakable convictions and lay them on the table and just shake the hell out of them. Mm. Just find everything that I can to take what I firmly believe in, the the antithesis of confirmation bias. Mm. That's the word that was in my you head know, as you were describing that confirmation bias. Yeah, and just relentlessly pursue what's out there that I so blindly am ignorant and arrogant to that I miss. Mm. And so I can go on and keep learning and peel off, you know, layers of skin and, you know, just keep, keep growing like a, like a evolving creature. Like we all are, you know, we're, we're evolving creatures, whether or not how we got here is whatever you want to believe, but day to day we're evolving, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, no one can deny that. Well, and I, I think if more people questioned their most deeply held beliefs, I mean, truly questioned, yeah, there's almost this culture and whatever deeply held belief you want to pick, whether it's religion, whether it's some scientific belief or political belief or wherever, where it's like, oh, don't don't read what the other people are saying mm -hmm. or don't listen to what the other people are saying. They're they're anti this or against that. I'm like, no, no, I'm I'm trying to like I've talked about this before in the podcast. I'm a religious person. I'm an Orthodox Christian. I regularly, regularly read atheists and I listen to atheist podcasts mm -hmm. like weekly. Yeah, absolutely. Because I don't want to believe something that I can't, um, reconcile. Yeah. Why, why would I yeah. do that? That's stupid. Right. And, um, or, I mean, I've given this example all the time. I think the world would be a much better place from a political standpoint. I've gone on this rant a million times about how much the media sucks and manipulating us and giving us a little puppeteering mm -hmm. show to keep us busy while mm -hmm. they're while the real things are happening. But if everybody just picked a conservative podcast and a liberal podcast, pick whatever you want. And for a month, every day, let's say, let's say first week, all they do is listen to the liberal podcast and they journal their emotions and feelings about the topics being discussed. And then right. The second week, they listen to a conservative podcast and journal their thoughts and feelings as they're listening to it. And, and, and how does it change? And then the third week, they listen to both, but they listen every day. They first listen to the conservative one and then the liberal one or vice versa. And then the next week, they flip it right? just to see how much in a very, very, very short time period, how right. much their thoughts and feelings change and and how much they're being manipulated. I listen to some of those folks, not because I can give a crap about what they have to say, but some of them are right. so exceptionally good 
at running your emotions up and keeping you hooked and manipulating every single aspect. That's why they they are as popular as they are. And I try to learn from it from a from a podcasting standpoint, not necessarily so much the manipulation part, but the 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 auditory aspect of like pulling emotion. I had to Google. That's why I was on my phone real quick. I'm not like ordering a pizza or something, but um, I ordered a new book and I just got it yesterday and it's called Mental Immunity mm. by Andy Norman. Oh, and it's oh, actually the, he was on the uh, four. Rogan. Yeah, I just that's how I watched. That's how I got it. I watched it. I listened to Rogan yesterday. Yeah. And man almighty, I ordered that book. Actually, I meant two days ago. I ordered the book immediately and I'm going to read it. I'm on vacation on the 4th through the 11th. So I'm going to take it on my fishing trip and read it. But talk about, you know, the parasites that get into our brain. You know, we have parasites that get into our body and, and kill us. But, you know, to develop this mental immunity, to, to develop the, the strength inside of your mind to filter, you know, all these things that are thrown at us daily, like you talk about the media poisoning us. Mm. Um, and, and the thing I got from Andy's thing that I thought was beautiful was it's a supply supply side or demand side problem. In other words, is the problem the supply side? So is it too much of the media, too much information, too much opinions, too much, you know, banter, or is it the demand side the That's demand we side where we're yeah. not we're not good enough in filtering this out? And I'm like, wow, what an awesome philosophical angle to look at this from because here we are, most of us complaining about the media. Well it's the media, it's the media, it's the media, but the reality is it's us. It's mm-hmm. it's in our it's our inability to develop immune systems to filter out the parasites that are thrown at us every single day. And I that's why I got his book. I'm trying to write all this stuff down going this Rogan podcast is awesome. Mm-hmm. And my point is I'm, I'm bringing this up is there's a micro example of me willingness to keep learning. You know, I have this I have this impending fear that I will die and and have left a lot on the table, mm. and that's that's one of my fears, and that's why I, I wrote my that. book. In, that's why I wrote my book in a year, um, and why I'm reading like twelve books at one time. I mean, I, with ADD, I cannot read one book. I have I have multiple books reading. I write about this in my book, and maybe you're the same way, but I cannot sit down and read a book. I have I start, I get a couple paragraphs, and I go to the next book, and then I come back to it two weeks later. Um, and for somehow that's how that's how I read and, and it, it's work it works for me. But um no, I think it's awesome the amount of information out there today. And if we can just as 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 a society keep challenging our convictions and not just go out and try to validate them, then I think we really grow. And I've got this saying I said in um oh, I don't know where I heard it from, but I really like it. It's when you're when you're green, you grow, when you're ripe, you rot. Mm. And if you just take that saying through life, you know, here I am at 55. I know nothing about technology. I am, I am absolutely horrendous. Yet, in three years, I have learned more about technology than I had in my entire lifetime up to these three years. And I allow myself two new things a day. That's all I can handle. So as I go through my day and someone says, let me show your phone how you do this. I'll say, that's my one thing I learned today. And I only allow myself two because I won't remember any more than two. That's actually a really. And I don't want to have a hundred. I don't want to have a hundred sticky notes all over my. Desk. So so wait 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 wait. I got to stop you right there. So are you telling me you're the old guy who's not incompetent with like your phone? 
Uh, I have teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> so I am incompetent. But, but you know, this whole podcast thing I'm doing down in my studio, this is all me. I, I have all my lights. I have my wires. I do all my recording. I then, you know, Molly, my producer, goes in, does the editing and mm-hmm. gets it on my, my website and stuff. But you know, I know enough to be dangerous, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. But I'm kind of excited about learning. I, I like... I like saying, wow, now I know how to use my Yeti. You know, I know how to, I know how to do a recording on my computer and actually send the file to somebody that that's exhilarating for me at 55. Mm. Because if you had seen me three years ago, I was that guy. I mean, I, I couldn't figure out how to turn my, my flashlight on, on my cell phone. I mean, that's how bad I was three years ago. Okay. So there there's there's a whole tech conversation we can have there but i do want to touch on something yeah. real quick. and we we talked about yeah. this briefly and i've had some really interesting conversations with physicians here recently in private and it's incredible what physicians at least the ones that i know these are people i've developed friendships with um will say in private about other physicians <laughs> and mm-hmm. the world in general it's kind of like what financial advisors would say about the financial services world in private versus in public um Mm-hmm. But you said it all started when your son was a, was prescribed Adderall at 15. Mm-hmm. Okay, what do you mean by that? At 15 years old, uh, Seth was having a lot of issues with uh, attention. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I have ADD. I'm sure you probably do too. Yep, probably. Um, I actually was, di- I was diagnosed with ADD, but my dad told me it was my superpower. And so- That's a genius way of explaining. It is. Well, my dad's a doctor. Yeah. My dad's a doctor. And back in the day, you know- we were just prescribed Ritalin. It wasn't Adderall. Yeah. And just and we shove took some meth in that kid. Let's go. Oh shit. I mean, sorry if I swore on your no, show. No, you're fine. Go to town. It's, um, it's disgusting. It's absolutely ridiculous. In the ni- in 1990, there was, I think 600,000 prescriptions of Ritalin by, uh, 2000, by, uh, 2000, it was 3.5 million of Ritalin. So you tell me in 10 years, what happened in the 90, from 90 to 2000, that the kids in America were any freaking different. But well, then how in the hell can you how can you prescribe six hundred thousand to three point five million of of basically watered down meth? You want to know how the company yeah, I that do makes because it the, irritates the, the company that makes Redland decided oh shit we have a cash cow here let's start let's start giving bonuses to physicians and the practices for prescribing it. There you go. That's it. The, the, that's it right there. The same reason we have an opioid epidemic in freaking Egypt doesn't because right. prescription drug companies give out bone I want you to think about this they give out bonuses to doctors for writing a certain number of prescriptions that's insane and and I know this but hearing it from you just reiterates the insanity of it um it's insane so what 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 do we do about it <laughs> what do we do about it well that's a that's a whole nother that, I mean that's kind of my mission now in, in my current line of work where I'm sitting here like okay there's got to be there's got to be ways to, to counter this. And, and it's not just me complaining about that. Like I said, doctors have voiced this to me one-on-one. Um, and there are doctors out there who are, who are uh, voicing, I forgot his name, but the guy who wrote The Price We Pay is a book that came out in 2017. He's putting out his second mm-hmm. version. If you've never read The Price You Pay or The Price We Pay, literally get on Amazon right now. Download the auto, Audible or the or, or go buy it or whatever and, and just go listen to it and be appalled. I will. And, and understand how, I mean, it's the same. Again, I'll go back to the financial services industry. How exactly 
and again, I'm using this industry because I was part of this machine. So let me critique my own, let me critique a decade of my own life. Okay. Okay. How exactly am I supposed to give you advice that's in your best interest when certain products from certain companies pay me 10 times as much to sell their product? That's a perfect example. And I'm guilty of that because I got to pay my bills. I am. I am too. So, so any doctors or any pharmacists, whatever listening out there, I'm not trying to crap on you as an individual. I'm crapping on your industry Mm -hmm. because I'm willing to crap on my own. Let's go back to this demand side thing. Maybe that is where our aim and attention should be. Um, Because the supply side, I don't think I'm going to be very effective out trying to eradicate heroin off the streets of America. Correct. I certainly don't. I certainly don't think I'm going to take the financial incentive off the table. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have the resources or the desire to get a 38 year old housewife to stop drinking two bottles of Pinot Grigio every night. Correct. But I do, and I will spend the rest of my life talking to kids. Uh, age of first use is 14 in the United States. So my sweet spot is 12 to 14 and 14 to 18. And that's where all my projects, all my, my uh, emphasis is going to be aimed at is that generation. Now, you know, you, your show is says the millennials, but 25 year old is 25 to 41 is considered the millennial. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing though. That 25 to 41, the children are the 8, 9, 10, 12, 15-year-olds yeah. that, that, that are going to be, I don't want to say dragging down the millennial generation, but for every Seth out there in a family, the collateral damage that he caused, now I, it sounds terrible because people are saying, well, geez, your son's dead, Jeff. How can you talk bad of him? Well, oh, there's a my reality. son, I can do it the hell I want. Yeah, I mean- I honor my son substantially more than I ever talk bad about him. But how in the heck are, is anybody that's coming up behind me going to learn if I keep these things a dirty little family secret, you know, and I don't talk about them? It's like um, my son, Seth, when he died, his, uh, his girlfriend was pregnant. So he has a, he has a daughter. That he didn't know about, right? And, he, well, we're not, we're not sure. We don't know if you knew, but, um, my point is, um, so I forgot my point. Sorry. The collateral damage. Yeah, I, I, oh yeah, the collateral damage. But you know, I, I'm ashamed to admit that, um, when we found out that Brighton was born right after Seth died, you know, I, I, as a man, it's it's horrible to to say this, but I I didn't want to get involved mm. because I was trying to save my marriage, mm. and I was trying to keep my other two boys focused. And so, you know, my immediate family became more important than my, you know, my uh, extended family. Mm. And it's it's a shame to say, but it, she was three before I met her, you know, and um, but. Here's where I'm going with this. She's four now, and I've been involved in her life you know, a year and a half, and she's met everybody on my side of the family. But I will, I will promise you this. Her dad is dead, and her mom is in jail for heroin. Mm. 
She's four years old. I've never seen my parents drunk. So she's got this massive opportunity. Notice how now notice how I'm framing this because the Stoics were big believers in framing things. Mm-hmm. I have to present the narrative to Brighton that this is an opportunity. This is your life competitive advantage over all your friends that are coddled and protected and and have loving parents. You don't have that right now. However, you have a great loving extended family and you need to know about your dad. Now she's still at four years old, not understanding the concept of death. Hmm. And we have pictures around the house. I'll pick her up and say, Hey, Brighton, you know, who that is, she'll say daddy. And I'll say, yeah. And I'll say, sorry. It's very, it gets very difficult often, but, um, I'll say, yeah, that's your dad, Brighton, and he's he's uh, he's not here right now. And I don't, I, for all the religious people out there, they're probably going to damn me to hell. But I don't tell her her dad's in heaven because I don't I don't know I, I'm not going to lie to her. I don't know about heaven and hell. Yeah. And is that harmless to say there's a Santa Claus? Probably, but I need to let her know that her dad isn't here. And as you get older you'll, you'll find out where he is on your own. Mm. And I'm just not one to tell my kids, Hey, let's put a bow tie on this. Stop searching for Seth. He's, he's in heaven playing with all the pets that we've lost. I just feel like I'm lying to her. If I do that, I just don't feel like I'm being the best uh, male influence in her life. Cause she has no male influences. So it's time for me to step up. Now, if she, if she, you know, the idea of heaven is comforting to her by all means. I think a four-year-old needs to have something to hang their hat on, but I'm not comfortable confirming for sure because personally I don't believe in heaven and hell. So, you know, again, until you're in this situation and you have the same feelings I have and and you've lost a child and, and you now have a granddaughter, there's all these little things that have kind of come together that until you've had all that in that order presented to you, you can't, tell me how you're going to react, you know? Um, and I'm not saying that I'm doing things correctly or incorrectly. What I don't want to do is be deceptive to her. Mm. And she has the right to know her dad was in prison for stabbing somebody. Mm. She has the right to know her dad died of heroin, not overdose, but specifically heroin with fentanyl. She needs to know which arm he put the needle in. These are things that are important to me. The more she knows about her dad, the more she can let go of this as she gets into the stages of her life that this is going to become trauma Yeah, and absorb, absorb all this into her story, you know? Yeah. And I, I can, I can, I can at four years old, you know, I got one chance to screw this up. I got one chance. I'm never going to have an opportunity for her to be four again. Mm. So I got one chance to not have to unwind things that I tried to bury or cover or whatever. So we're not, we're being very careful how we present this to her, you know? Um, but there is going to be a day like every adopted kid where they say, Hey dad, what's my mom like? Mm. And I don't want to have that day where I spring it on. I want to sprinkle it, you know, like, like the government's doing with these UFOs. Now they're like <laughs> slowly, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big into UFOs and Bigfoot, but so they're like slowly sprinkling us this, this, affirmation that there's UFOs. So when they do land here, we're going to say, Oh shit, this is no big deal. We've known about this for years. You know? Yeah. 
<laughs> That's a funny. Sorry, one. I digressed a little bit. No, there, no, 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 no. You're fine. My wife and I were literally talking about the UFOs the the other day. <laughs> uh, my wife, we were laying in bed the other night. My wife was like, "Can we just appreciate the fact that last March the government was like, yeah, UFOs are real. Here's the stuff.'" And we were all like, "Yeah, but let's talk about this pandemic." Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, oh, that's funny. Oh, so, so what? Okay. First of all, holy crap, that was powerful. I don't even like this is this episode is awesome. I, we're just going to keep going. Um, I, I do want to go back to, so I think everything you said, super important, but I do want to go back to a point because I, I think we didn't really elaborate on it enough. The, the 15 year old getting Adderall and that turning into a heroin oh, yeah. addiction. Okay, God, I'm happy. I'm happy you brought that up. I have a big block of my chap on my book um, dedicated to the story. Matter of fact, the opening chapter talks about the day he died. Then I, I rewind it going back to the preceding eight years because I wanted to start with the moment he died, open the book mm-hmm. to show the impact of of how this can you know just tear up a family, and then I went back and started with fifteen with Adderall, and Seth started abusing Adderall. In other words, he was. Mm taking too much of it. He was selling it at school, um, stealing it from other friends because, you know, this was in 2012 when he graduated high school and he died in 16. So about from 2008 to 2016, that was the, that was the journey that we had with addiction. So it started with Adderall and then just normal things like alcohol, like, you know, we all did. I mean, I probably started drinking like in seventh or eighth grade. Mm-hmm. I never did drugs. I smoked pot twice in my life. Once was on a Caribbean island, which I'm pretty sure wasn't pot. Um, I smoked both times. I puked both times. Uh, I know. I knew that I would become Len Bias if I did cocaine. Mm. That I would. I would want to do it all. I couldn't do it one line. I'd want to do the whole bag. And that's how I walked into casinos. I wanted to win all the money, not some of the money. So with an ADD personality, I knew that drugs just drug drugs weren't going to work for me. Seth, I don't think ever had that ability to have an off button. He never, he never had the ability to say, I want to go get high. He wanted to do all the drugs until he passed out. Mm. And so it went from Adderall, alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, like around 18 or 19, and I write about that the day we caught him with Coke in the book. Um, and then he started having all his legal problems, stealing from us, broke into a neighbor's garage, stole a flat screen, sold it at a pawn shop, pawn shop got caught, got uh, stabbed a guy with eight inch brass knuckles with a blade on it uh, in a fight with a girl and another guy, got sent to prison, been in jail probably three times prior to that, drunk driving, things like that. Um, this was all before the age of... Uh, Oh, this was all probably before the age of 21, 22. Did he have a, and again, I don't know how well you can analyze this as a father, but yeah, did he have mental issues that caused him to be so extreme on that front? I'm happy you brought that up. He had, he had undiagnosed mental issues. Okay. Um, The father of three sons, I have all three to kind of compare each other to. Mm. And there was no question he had. What's the what's the issue when you have um, a, 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 a infatuation with your uh, your um, not morphology but your uh, like your your arms and kind of how things line up and you're just kind of you're paranoid about your oh, physical appearance. I know what you're talking about. Maybe but I don't know what it's called. Maybe there is a morphology or something, a term like that. But he had some type of 
I think he had depression, uh, never diagnosed with it. But yeah, you're, you're right. I, I, and that's one of the things that I'm trying to get out there, uh, talking to millennials and the generation even, even after that, is the, the mental health umbrella over all this. I mean, bipolar, anxiety, suicidal ideation, ADD, all these things are subsets under that, that, uh, that umbrella that says mental health. Mm-hmm. And one in five Americans have a severe mental health issue at some point. And I have numbers written down here all over the place, but there's so many treatment facilities. There's so many people going through, uh, through treatment. Um, it's a big, it's a big issue. And so the mental health aspect, I have to think that Seth just, we were so busy putting out fires. Mm-hmm. We never had the time to get them legitimately diagnosed because every call, I, we kicked him out of the house. Again, that's all in the book. Um, every call I got was just, I kept telling him, I said, you know, Seth, I'm just your fire chief, dude. All I do is put out your fires. There's, there's no, there's no building any foundation because all we're doing is just defensively putting out problems. And that's again, a big block of the book is very specific situations we had with him that parents that are going through these same things. I think what I'm trying to get the point across is there's more likelihood your son or daughter isn't going to be dead in a hotel room with a needle in his arm. That, yeah. that's, there's a higher probability that's not going to happen. Yeah. But, it, but that's not the only thing that can happen that is, the wor- is, is a terrible possible outcome. Correct. There are so many other things. You know, um, my alcoholism got ranched up. My, my wife's issues with substance abuse got ratcheted up. Um, you know, all these things got, got amplified, a word you used previously. And that's such a great word in this situation because the collateral damage when there is an addicted personality in your household is devastating. It's a pan, it's a virus. It's a pandemic inside your own house, you know? And that's where I went back and I told you earlier at 50, I didn't, I, I mean, if I, like I said, I was on the, I was on the top of the mountain of my life. I, I was, I made it, you know, I was like Rocky. I'm like, I made it. And then in an, in a fricking instant, it was pulled out, but I was wearing a mask though for many years previous to that, but I was functional. You know, I was functional. I was a good dad. I was a good husband. I wasn't out philandering. I wasn't beating my kids. I wasn't, my business was thriving. I mean, it was doing so well. Like you said, I was making so much money that um, I was probably not mature enough to handle it at certain stages of my life. There's no question. Mm. There's no question. Had I made the money, like, I don't like losing $10 on the golf course today, but I could lose 10,000 in a casino Mm. in my twenties. And it didn't bother me at all. Yeah. 10 bucks today. I want to fist fight you. You know, it's a weird, um, dynamic there. As you get older, you make more and you, but you end up respecting it so much more too. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, there's some, and, and the analogy you gave to golf, for example, earlier, is you want to talk about a game and um and um and something that'll humble you and something that'll yeah feel, like I will go out there. I finally graduated from an absolutely terrible golfer to a bad golfer. I'm very proud of this. But <laughs> I'll I'll go out there. It's it's incredible. Yeah. I'll go out there and I will crush the living crap out of a drive. 
I mean, straight as an arrow into the stratosphere. I accidentally yeah. outdrove a hole on Saturday. <laughs> um, so I'll I'll take a two sixty to two ninety, and then I oh, can't yeah. pitch worth a shit, and I, I three putt. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, I suck yeah. at this. I'm really good off the tee, but man, oh man, am I bad at the rest of this? I need to go practice. Um, but it's so crazy because that drive keeps you coming back. Like it's like, oh, okay, that was beautiful. I've got that part figured out. Why don't I figure out the rest of it? So it's funny you say that because, um, you know, I, I, in my thirties, I was a pretty good golfer. I got down to about a six handicap. I played actually two years of college golf kind of by accident. I went there to play basketball, but ended up playing golf too, because they didn't have enough players. But Mm. anyway, if you notice behind me on my shoulder here, um, that's a, that's a picture of my son, Ian right here. Okay. And Ian's a big part of my book. And when Seth died, matter of fact, the title of my book, um, I don't have a copy of it in front of me. I probably can grab it. If you got a second, I can grab it and show you it. Matter of fact, if you don't mind, let me do that real quick. Go here. For it. But uh, the, the title of my book, uh, this is my book. Um, this one's for you, An Inspirational Journey Through Addiction, Death, and Meaning. And um, that phrase came from my son, Ian, after Seth died, he raised, uh, I don't know what it was, 20. He's raised, he's raised close to 50,000 now through golf to help uh, uh, adolescents through alcohol and drug abuse. Wow. Um, and he, uh, in high school, he raised $20,000 after his brother died. He was a sophomore in high school. And what he would do when he make a birdie, he would hold his putter up and say, this one's for you. Oh, that's sweet. And, and that became such a big story here locally that it became a big story nationally. And CBS Sports flew out here, cbssportsnetwork.com. And they stayed they stayed four days in Cedar Rapids here. And they did a nine-minute documentary. It's on the internet. Um, and Zach Johnson, the Hall of Fame golfer, uh, will be Hall of Fame, won the Masters in 06. He's from Cedar Rapids. He actually narrated the whole nine-minute documentary on my son, Ian. Wow. And... Yeah. And if you, so if your listeners or watchers or followers, whatever we call them these days, um, if they went to Ian Johnston, CBS sports, they could see the video, or if they go to my living website and just scroll around, you'll find the actual video. But yeah, Zach, the night before a tournament, uh, my, my agent for the show, um, contacted him and he, 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 he narrated the nine minute story. So it's, it's an awesome opportunity for us to use golf as a way to, I write in the, I write in my book, golf saved my life. But when I say that people think, Oh, I became an obsessed golfer. I hired a coach. I got better. I played in tournaments and I won the city am or something. No, I didn't play any more golf. Golf saved my life because I put it all into my son. And I, 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 I invested in his future and his career and now he's a division one golfer at South Dakota mm. and he's continuing this legacy. He's a sophomore out there, but he's continuing this legacy of honoring his son or honoring his brother and using golf to do good. And so I'll send you a copy of my book and you'll, I think there's five or six chapters that I dedicate to how golf just um, took off. And um, we were part of an organization called the American Junior Golf Association, which is kind of like the PGA for junior golf. And, you know, the PGA has the Payne Stewart award mm-hmm. and they pick one golfer each year in the PGA to be honored, to be the humanitarian of the year, 
you know. And last year they picked Zach Johnson from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Mm. Well, here's talk about an ironic twist to the story. The AJGA, which is the largest junior golf association in the world, they picked one junior golfer in 2019, boy or girl, in the world to win the Jerry Cole Sportsmanship Award. And they picked my son, Ian. Wow. And Ian got to go down to Florida and read the keynote speech, which is, I just got done doing the audiobook for my book. And actually, Ian's speech is in the audiobook the way he read. I mean, it's his voice. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was a moment where I said to myself, this is a big story. This isn't a story about Jeff Johnston and Ian Johnston and even Seth. This is a story about humanity, humility, honoring somebody you love about about just being grateful for what we have Mm. and Trauma f- freaking sucks, man. It sucks. It, 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 uh, but I tell you what, it ain't going to drag me down, man. It's going to pull me up. And I refuse, simply refuse to feel sorry for myself. And I don't allow my boys, I allow my boys to grieve, but I don't allow, allow them to use the death of the brother to become an excuse to crumble. And people have kind of taken up on our, our story. They're like, wow, what you've done with your boys, Jeff, is awesome. And I'm like, you know, I, I'm not arrogant, but we're just getting started. We are just getting started. I have a project I'm working on that is bigger than anything I've done. And it's all directed towards the kids. It's all directed towards connectivity, communication, education with our youth today. And again, going back to the title of your podcast, Millennial Manhood, it's like millennials now are having the kids. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're having the kids that are going to have these problems. And the millennials, if if you want to talk about the millennials, as a financial advisor, we spend a ton of time on our marketing material geared towards uh, millennials, the fear of missing out, the fear of spending, the lack of taking advantage of your 401k match, the high amount of debt that you accumulate. I host a radio show here in Cedar Rapids. I've been doing it for 13 years called the Premier Investments of Iowa Financial Hour. It's every Tuesday night. And we talk about specifically probably 80% of our topics are on the millennials mm-hmm. and the financial challenges they have. Well, now look at the addiction and the mental health issues that they have. I mean, that whole millennial uh, subset of humans is an interesting bunch. They have some big challenges ahead of them. Interesting. You know, it's an interesting not, term to use. <laughs> you know, and now that they, you know, are battling their own alcoholism that maybe started in their 20s and 30s and now they're 40 and they're drinking a bottle of wine every night. Yep. Um, now their kids are. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, what can you and I do on podcasts, on talking, on sharing our story that somebody says, man, you know what? The doctor says I should give my son Adderall. I don't know. Maybe I ought to get him into meditation. Yeah, I think what it comes down to is I think within American culture, because we are such an unbelievably wealthy and stable society, even with all the things that are happening and have happened, this is an unbelievably state. This is, this experiment should not have worked period. This doesn't make sense. A multi, there's no such thing as an American. And here's what I mean Mm. by, there's no such thing as an ethnic American, 
Hmm. When we speak within the concept, you can say Native Americans were here for, no, no, I'm talking about the United States of America. There's no such thing as an ethnic American. The closest thing we possibly could get to a hundred years ago was a wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Hmm. But in 2021, there's no such thing as an ethnic American. There's such a thing as an ethnic German or an ethnic Russian or an ethnic, Hmm. you know, uh, Arab in in Lebanon. There's no such thing as an ethnic American. Hmm. It's anybody can kind of just become an American. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. From a nation building standpoint, that makes zero sense. This experiment should not have worked. It did somehow partially due to a very robust economy, partially due to our military and and just kind of the fact that we can do, we do whatever the hell we want. <laughs> so we've been able to keep things under wraps internally. Right. And with that wealth and stability, there's a deep level of trust in institutions traditionally. Hmm. So when somebody tells you, hey, your kid needs to be put on Adderall, the first instinct is not to question it. Right. Whereas, and I didn't. I didn't. Correct. Whereas, I don't know, you grew up in Turkey, you're questioning the shit out of everything. Huh. Because that stability. That's interesting. That stability that you take for 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 granted here doesn't exist in a lot of other places. Like when you're when you're constantly having to deal with actual threats to your society, your culture, your existence, you as a human being, um which again, I'm not saying that doesn't exist in, in pockets and communities in the United States, but just overall, it just you have to be insane to think that we don't have an incredibly stable society, especially this patchwork of crap we've just kind of put together and said, here you go, America. Um, Never thought of it that way. Now, with the decline of our economy over the last really 30 years, I mean, the 90s was an anomaly. Everybody always, I mean, especially in like the, the stock market, people are like, oh, I'm going right. to get 8%. It's like, when the hell was the last time you got 8% annually net of everything? From 1992 to 1999? That, yeah. That, that kid can drink now. Okay? Yeah. Um, so we're, we're stuck in this mindset of the 90s, still this boom time. time. You know, we're looking at <clears throat> the social unrest. We're looking at the, the, the military un- uh, unrest. I mean, right. <laughs> y- you know. Uh, uh, the the commentary around that we're looking at the economic unrest. I mean, fifty percent of all homes in the last year have sold above asking. That's not normal. Isn't that crazy? But that, I, I saw that too. It's not normal. It's probably higher now. Yeah, it's that. That's not a healthy economy. So yeah. there's a lot. The pandemic. There's all these different things, and. Uh, American exceptionalism kind of disappearing. Part of the part, in my opinion, part of the fabric that created this non-ethnic ethnic American identity is the idea of American exceptionalism, and and people that's crumbling and being like, hey, we're not God's gift to Earth. We're just regular human beings, <laughs> and we do a lot of shitty things in the world, just like any other country. We do a lot of great things, yeah. we do a lot of shitty things. So with that fabric falling apart, there's also a distrust in institutions coming in, mm-hmm. which is good to some degree also really bad to another degree because right since we have nothing right. holding us together as like an ethnic america like like in germany this or or france or whatever you at least have a common ancestry you can share and a common culture and a common ethos mm-hmm. around that what scares me here is we don't have any of that and i'm seeing it fall apart and 
I'm hoping we can curb that falling apart because I kind of like living here and I like yeah. living in peace. So, so, so I think there's a balance. Your, what's your thoughts on, um, and I know we're probably running into, uh, the clock here for, I don't know how long we've got time. Okay. Awesome. Um, so let's, let's go to solutions. Um, I talked about the demand side emphasis that I'm trying, I'm trying to get out there and talk to kids to get them to, to, to look at things differently and, and do, do less of being told what to do more of, uh, being taught how to think, you know, mm-hmm. that, 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 that trade-off because, you know, as I know that when our parents said, don't do this, the first thing we did is did it. Yeah. So, and we think as parents that that narrative has changed that, Hey, I tell my kids don't drink, don't smoke, don't have sex. And, they'll, they'll and they're going to listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> the first thing they're going to do is run out and do all three. So, okay, that's fine. You're going to do all three, but let me tell you the consequences that, that, that come with choices. Mm-hmm. And so I formed a nonprofit, um, coming up, it's a year and a half now called the Choices Network. And my nonprofit is geared towards adolescents for kids, youths, to make better choices with drugs and alcohol. And I didn't want to name it, you know, the Sober Living uh, Nonprofit or Don't Do Drugs, Inc. Or yeah, it just, dare. to me, it wasn't about, yeah, it wasn't about lecturing. It wasn't about moral authority. It was about choices. And that's really at the end of the day. I think that if we can get to the kids and I'll say 18 and under, so the millennials kids growing up now, we can get to them and we can arm them with tools such as meditation, such as yoga, such as exercise, such as eating healthy, such as working out, such as, uh, you know, uh, building up a mental immunity system uh, like this book I'm reading now where they can start saying, you know what, Fox News, click. CNN, click, you know, Twitter, uh, Trump, click, you know, just start cutting off these viruses, because if you can demonstrate to me that this is increasing your well-being, then so then so be it. But my guess is it's not. And there's a reason why suicide rates and anxiety and all this stuff is through the freaking roof with not just millennials. It's everybody. You know, I, I stumbled across something the other day. This is, you know, mind boggling, but the largest percentage, uh, area of suicide in the United States, um, year over year is white middle-aged men. Yep. I saw that and I thought this needs to be told. I'm not, I'm not trying to deflect black lives matter. I'm not trying to deflect Asian hate. I'm I'm not, that's not why I bring up a stat like that because immediately people are like, well, too bad. You guys are rich and entitled white people. And you kill yourself, you know, that that's too bad. But, you know, there's more to the story than all these things. Mm-hmm. And there is something going on in our society where white middle-aged men are feeling an inordinate. And I'm that guy. Mm-hmm. I'm divorced after a 20-year great marriage. I buried a child. I was an alcoholic, compulsive gambler. What other reasons do I need to put a gun to my head? I've had them all. <sighs> but I don't. You know? I... This is just my initial thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm open. But it's your generation that is really dealing with the brunt of the falling apart of that social cohesion, that that um, that yellow brick road you went down, and now the curtain's been pulled from behind a wizard. Yeah, good way to say that. I agree 100%. Because you existed in a la-la land. And that's, and you came of age in a la la land and, and, and not re- right. it wasn't reality. The, the sixties through nineties were not real life for your average American. Right. 
it just American culture built absolutely nothing during that time yet had unbelievable unprecedented wealth that's never happened mm-hmm. in history mm-hmm. why well there's several different reasons World War II didn't actually impact America. Yes, we had 500,000 soldiers die, but we didn't have 10 million Russians killed on their home. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your your cities weren't destroyed. Right. You know, World War War II ends and all of a sudden the entire world is your market. And then you can go a little deeper and say Nixon, when he temporarily took the dollar off the gold standard, now the government has an unlimited piggy bank to print themselves money out of any single problem without having to actually create anything of value. So, so there's this mirage happening and you're on this roller coaster and it's just going and it's just going and it's just going. And then the wheels start falling off the damn coaster. And again, this is just my initial thoughts. I've given this, I've thought a lot about what is happening. Um, and I'm open to changing my opinion. I mean, I'm open to having this mm-hmm. discussion just more in depth, depth as well. But I think it's that falling apart of that mirage almost is is tipping people over. I I, I can't think of an, another reason because who benefited most from that besides middle-aged white men? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, the, the nice thing about your focus, the, the millennials is, is and, and in the group behind them, is that's really the... That's what's coming up. That that they're the ones that are going to have to fix these issues that the previous generations have, have maybe fumbled. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't say you know literally lost the game, but we fumbled some things. There's no question. Uh, it seems like each generation refines and, and retunes and recalibrates. You know, everything that was done preceding and the millennials is that's our hope. I mean that 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 that, that generation with their kids now. And it's funny because in my office, I have, I'm probably, I'm the oldest financial advisor at 55 in the office, but you know, we have 35 year olds with three kids. We have 40 year olds with two kids. I mean, all this, and they're the next generation, you know, they're going to more weddings than they are funerals. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm going to more funerals than weddings. And so how do we empower the millennials to look at all these things out there that, well, you know, social media is social media is just as, you know, as, as great as it is for you and I to do this, I never would have met had it been for uh, Zencaster and, and LinkedIn. Yeah. But the problems, the toxicity, the poisoning out there, uh, how do we, how do we redirect millennials to, to maybe not, I don't want to say pay attention, but prioritize. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. Here, here's something that struck me the other day. I was looking at a picture on Twitter of a beach in Florida in the seventies. I didn't see a single fat person in that picture. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Now I, I know where you're going with this. Yeah. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, there's a couple different things that happened. One, um, you want to, we want to crap on some industries. The food industry is disgusting and the lobbying that they I do. couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um, They've absolutely destroyed us. We went from basically having no diabetes in the 1970s in the United States to having just massive amounts of humans. We didn't evolve in 30 years as creatures to have a different DNA and different physiological makeup than what we had literally a generation ago. Right. Um, So food, you know, taking care of our bodies, working out, like you said, meditating. If religion is something that's important to you, having a religious community, having a religious belief. 
if if religion isn't important to you, having a philosophical belief, um, faith, fa- some sort of faith, something. Yeah, um, it can be whatever. I mean, I would right. argue that most atheists that I meet are very religious. They're just religious to atheism. Um, they have their <laughs> creeds that they stick to. Uh, and that's fine. I don't care. I'm not here to, I'm not knocking on your door and, and handing you a pamphlet. I don't care about your um, belief system. Just have a guiding compass of some sort. Um, and with millennials in particular, I, I feel like most people, my generation feel like we've gotten the shaft in so many different ways as a generation, <laughs> you know, once in a lifetime recession, 2008, nine, 10, once in a lifetime pandemic, you know, <laughs> 2021 at all the major stages of our life where we're nine well, 11. Yeah. Nine 11. Like, yeah. I mean, how traumatic is that? So at every major stage of our life, we're coming out of adolescence, nine 11, where we're coming out of college, 2008, nine, 10, where we're, you know, building a family 2020, we get like the sucker punch. Um, and that's to a degree, that's fine. That's life. You know, if we'd lived 300 years ago, the Huns would have attacked our village or something. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. But, but yep. because again, I think it goes back to this mirage that we've existed in, in this country in particular, it's like, oh, woe was us? And it's like, no, what was you? If you live in Syria right now, you're getting bombed. That's what was you. Now you're preaching to the choir. I, 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 you know, born and bred in, in America, this, you know, I have the biased lenses on and, you know, when I travel, my son and I scuba dive all over. Mm-hmm. And when I travel, I'm really indoctrinated to um, the local cultures and the history. And, and we go to, I always try to take my son to somewhere. And we did a plantation down in um, St. Lucia where the slaves were forced to make rum for, you know, not just pirates, but for the people who were trading down there. And we saw the slave quarters and you sit there and I'm with my son, you know, he's a 17 year old white American, you know, probably got thousand bucks in his checking account, you know? And, uh, I'm thinking how fortunate he is that he wasn't just by the birth lottery, you know, unlucky to be born in, you know, 1775 in St. Lucia and be forced to, you know, make rum for rich Europeans, you know, and in a way that context or that, way to look at life should give you gratitude. But the problem is though, it doesn't, I think, I don't think people appreciate where we are and there's always somebody that has it worse. And that's one thing I've learned through my storytelling is no matter, no matter how tragic my story is, there is somebody that has it worse. And you may think, well, Jeff, what's worse than burying a child? Well, how about burying two? Mm. I met a gentleman by the name of Steve Grant. He was the impetus for my book. He's become a great friend. I talk to him almost every day. He lives in South Carolina. He lost his only two boys 20 years ago, five years apart, Chris and Kelly, to overdoses. His only two boys. So there you go. People say, wow, Jeff, that's awesome what you're doing. No, what's Steve Grant? And he's raised a million dollars through the Chris and Kelly Hope Foundation to help adolescents. And if that's not a freaking hero in my life, I'm looking in the wrong places. So I get inspiration from people like Steve Grant. And so people get inspiration from me. They get inspiration from hearing your story, you know, and, and we haven't shared, you haven't shared too much on this podcast, but I know in your previous ones, I'm sure you have some of the personal struggles you went through, but there's always people that have it worse than us. You know, no matter where we look, we don't have to go very far. Someone has it worse. 
Well, and I, I think that's one of the things where when I talk to people my generation, and I'm very sympathetic to my generation. Like millennial manhood is 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 a passion project. It's almost a love letter to my generation. I'm not trying to crap mm. on people my age. I think we've got an ungodly amount of potential. Absolutely. But what I am trying to do on a regular basis is, and I am by no let's I've talked about this. I am by no stretch of the imagination somebody you should be looking up to. <laughs> like, yes, there are certain aspects of my <laughs> life that I've done well in, but I've got so many freaking faults. Ask my wife. Um, she'll gladly- I love your podcast, by the way. So I, I, I want to have a podcast as good as yours. That's well, what I'm looking up to. I appreciate that. I really do. Uh, it's been a, it's been a long time coming and, and a lot of work into it, but um, we've got so much potential as a generation from a mindset standpoint where we can change the way our society thinks from a, from a social justice standpoint, let's, let's, let's just say, dude, cops in the eighties were killing black men and sprinkling crack on them. Yeah. (laughs) Like what? (laughs) What? For the freaking Iran Contra scandal, the CIA was literally smuggling crack into yeah. black neighborhoods to fund operations in Nicaragua. Yeah. yeah. What? And and that was your generation. I'm not picking on you in particular, but your generation no, is no, kind of no, looking no. the other way. Like, okay, yeah, they, I mean, they're just whatever. They're just poor. They're just they're just black. Why don't they pull themselves up by their bootstraps? Like, but are you freaking kidding me? That's what we did. You're right. You're exactly right. That's like the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. Are you 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 can't yeah. oppress a people. <laughs> for yeah. hundreds of years well, that's, and then be like, pull yourself yeah. up. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a deeper conversation right. that needs to be had here. Right. Like, um, <clears throat> and that's just one, one thing. I mean, Dave Chappelle had a, had a joke about that. He was like, why didn't you guys get a little suspicious when every, when every black man who was found dead by the police had just magically had crack on him, like what they die and then sprinkle crack on themselves. Like there's a Netflix show. I can't remember the name. I watched it the other day. Exactly what you're talking about about the the um the they exposed the 80s and uh, they talked about the the guns the iran contra affair they talk about the the you know a lot of the issues that were in the inner cities were kind of put there by uh certain people to you know magnify an agenda whether it was you know well and it, it goes back to just corruption of industry does that mean every single yeah. police officer yeah. is bad hell no no hell no, no. let's like Right. something happens i'm calling the cops and and i've been yeah. i've been fortunate enough to be treated very well by the police when my like my apartment got broken into and i got robbed and, and things like that but that doesn't mean well. that there are not injustices and things that do need to be addressed and my generation is kind of at the forefront of it now you can make the politicization mm-hmm. of it and the good and the bad like we can have different discussions about that but that's a that is a virtue that's valuable from a generational standpoint so that that's powerful the fact that we're not I think it's valuable that as a generation, we're not just willing to pop out kids just to pop out kids. Yeah. That a lot of us are waiting until we're actually functioning adults with fully developed prefrontal cortexes before we have children. (laughs) I think that's going to be beneficial long term. So we get crapped on a lot as a generation, but I really think we have a massive amount of potential we're bringing to to the table. You know, one thing that goes well for the millennials is it's the most educated, uh, group of people coming up in Mm -hmm. history. Um, so, but you talked about dieting. I, I, I wrote about this extensively about does being educated mean that you're going to be better and take, for example, what we know about the food we eat, everything we, t- we eat today has 
even water has a freaking label on the back. I mm-hmm. mean, it tells you what's in water. So we know more now than we've ever known in the history of mankind about dieting, weight control, cholesterol, diabetes, yet we're the heaviest, most obese country in the, in the industrial world and we're getting fatter, but we know more. And living so, shorter. So the, no, the knowledge part isn't the problem. The supply part's not the problem. We're supplied with enough data that I know a Big Mac is not healthy. I know yeah. chicken nuggets are not healthy. I don't need a label to tell me that anymore. It, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have labels on anything. I thought a hot dog was healthy, you know. Frosted flakes. I thought flakes. A Coke. Frosted flakes. Yeah, I thought Mountain Dew was was like an like a like an energy drink. You know, mm. I mean, we we had no idea what was in this stuff. Mm. You know, so when people tell me that, oh yeah, we increase our education, it'll make us better, you know, better decision makers. I play the BS card on that. If that is true, then that should cross over to dieting. We should be the thinnest country, industrial country in the world. We should be in the best shape because we know more about what we put in our mouth than we've ever had in history, yet we are the fattest we've ever been in history. Where's the problem? It's not a supply side problem. It's demand side. It's here. It's the fact that we don't process information very well. We perceive things inaccurately. We have biases that we have built up over time that are not serving us justice so that to me is, again, going back to addiction, drug abuse, alcoholism, all these problems with kids, that's my sweet spot. That's where I'm going to spend the rest of my life is the demand side. Yeah, Getting kids, you know what? You're going to be offered alcohol at a football game, but here's how you combat that. And I have an initiative I started called the Don't Start Initiative. And it's the acronym ABC. And it's called Awareness Breathing Cho- Choose. Mm. And so I'm teaching kids through, through meditation, which I'm a huge advocate of, I'm teaching kids that when you're confronted with a choice, vaping, which is now the biggest entry drug out there for kids is vaping, alcohol, Adderall, whatever, you got to be aware you're in a situation that mommy and dad told you to be in. Mm. Hey, I'm here. They aren't here, but I'm here. I got to breathe. Deep breath. You got 10, 15 seconds to figure out what's going to come out of your mouth when that kid says, hey, let's go vape. And I'm going to teach him a couple things to say, like I'm on medication or my dad's picking me up in 15 minutes. You got to have some cop outs that are kind of just yeah. rehearsed. And then you choose. But when you choose, there's consequences. Mm. So you choose to vape and you get, you're driving home and the cop pulls you over or, or the kid driving gets pulled over and they find the vape and someone else had marijuana. And now you're all down at the police station. Well, that decision you made to vape, you didn't think it was a big one. Now it is a big one. And that's, that's, I think where we can go and meditation. The Dalai Lama said if, if he could get every child today to meditate in one generation, he could remove violence off the planet. Now, I, I think that's a big stretch, but I think we could definitely enhance well-being if we could get children to meditate. Yeah. You know? All right. We are running on time now. <laughs> so I got to ask you the question. I ask everybody. You go back to 18-year-old you. Knowing all that you know, knowing all that you know about yourself, what's one piece of advice you give yourself? Trust your instincts. Trust your gut. Don't wait for things to happen. You know, I was the kid that I never built the Lincoln logs up. I tore them down. You know, I would walk by and knock my brother's stuff down. I was not a builder. Yeah. So I've now in my life, I've decided that I need to start building. Mm. So you know, projects I'm on are trying to build a foundation. So I'd say, trust your instincts. Um, be undeterred. It's my favorite word in my life. Um, simply because it's 
not comfortable to say, and most people don't say it. They say resilient. That's sexier. Mm. Um, so I like, I like that word. Follow your gut, follow your instincts. And then I think the one sentence that I would say to wrap this up is find your why and you'll find your way. I love it. And in my why, my why was October 4th, 2016 at 630 in the morning. That was my why. How can people get a hold of you? Well, the easiest is to go to www.livingundeterred.com. That's my main website. Um, I'm on Facebook uh, under Jeff Johnston and Living Undeterred. I'm on LinkedIn, which is probably my most popular mode of uh, exploration at this point. Um my nonprofit, all the information, my book, everything is on the livingundeterred.com. I'm open to go to podcasts and speak like this. I'm looking for guests on my podcast. And if we can just continue these conversations, you know, two heads are better than one. I think you and I can do a lot of, a lot of good in helping one kid not become what my son became. Mm. And it's all worth it. Well, okay then. This was one hell of a podcast. Um, <laughs> Jeff, thanks for coming I on. It. I appreciate Thanks, you. I really do. Um, for everyone listening, go check out livingundeterred.com. Check out the podcast. Check out the social media, etc. On our end, info at manhoodpod.com if you want to get a hold of me. Uh, if you got people you want me to interview, if you got criticism, constructive criticism only, don't just complain, offer a solution. <laughs> and outside of that, enjoy the episode. We'll, we'll talk to you guys soon. <laughs>